The second Bible reading is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 34. You can find it on page 1030 of the Pew Bible, or you can read it off the screen. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at the left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, as Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want to do, me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately, they received their sight and followed him. This is God's word. Well, good morning, friends. Um, uh, do keep your Bible open to that passage. We'll make our way through this. Uh, but let's turn to God in prayer once again. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on this passage this morning, we pray that your word will not only inform our minds, but that it will convict our hearts and change our wills, that our lives might be in conformity to your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it always uh, amazes me. It's always exciting to come to church each week, just like this, to be part of the family of God and to see and enjoy the wonderful diversity we have here at church. We are so diverse, we're so different in so many different ways. I mean, if you have a look around, we've got pretty much every age bracket covered from the newborns to those in the 90s and still going strong. Some of you in the 90s still going strong. And we've got pretty much every decade covered, which means we're so diverse in, in who we are. Uh, some of us grow up with the likes of uh, Frank Sinatra and Louis Armstrong. Some of us younger ones have no idea who you're talking about when you're talking about those guys. And, and you have diversity even, even amongst the, the ministry team, Chris and myself. One of us can dance. 
Chris, he cracked a few moves even just this morning. <laughs> One of us can't dance, looks hideous dancing, and that's me. Uh, it's only, uh, my dancing's only good for making Yvonne vomit, so <laughs> we don't want that. We're so diverse in many different ways, aren't we? Diverse in our cultures that on last count, there are over 20 cultures represented in our church family. Isn't that wonderful? Over 20. We're different in the languages we speak at home, our hobbies and our talents. But the question I have for all of us this morning is this. How many different types of Christians are there? How many different types of Christians are there? How many different types of Christians are there meant to be? Now recently I've been reading on the life of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, many of you would know of his story. He was part of a, an American missionary team, one of five, who went to Ecuador in the 1950s. He was part of this small missionary team. This team, here's a picture of them, five of them, they wanted to bring the gospel to this unreached people group in the Amazon rainforest in Ecuador. These people group are known as the Wadani people. Now what we know from anthropologists was that this people group, they're an extremely violent tribal group. Lots of inter-clan killings. In fact, 60% of the deaths that they experience is due to murder. And so everyone in the tribe would know of a brother or an uncle or father who was killed. But it was to this group, this unreached people group that Jim Elliott and his team wanted to bring the gospel to. And so looking at their story and watching documentaries, they sought to establish a relationship with this group, with this tribe. And so they flew over their village over several months, sending gifts down from the plane and sometimes even receiving gifts back uh, to the plane. And so they did this for several months. And after seeing the friendliness of the Wadani people, they decided to land let's meet the people on the ground and so on the 3rd of january in 1956 the team landed on a sandy beach to set up camp close to the village and what happened some from the village came out to them uh, some befriended them but then one of these villagers he went back to the village and he was afraid that the the people back at the village would get him into trouble for relating to these foreigners for speaking with them and so this one guy, he went back to the village and he told them that foreigners, these foreigners have landed to attack them and they are dangerous. And so on the 8th of January in 1956, a group of Wildani warriors came to their camp and they speared them to death that day. Now when, when I read about their life and what they were wanting to do, watch documentaries, it was extremely not just fascinating but so moving that one day they wanted to land to meet the people they were speared to death. So my question for us this morning, why would those five missionaries put themselves in such danger? I mean, they had their own families to care for. Jim Elliot, he was only 28 years old. His daughter was not even one years old yet. Why would anyone do such a thing? So my question for us this morning is, are those Christians a different type of Christian to us here? What was it about their faith that would get them to do such a thing? What is it about our faith that would stop us from doing such a thing? And so, are there different types of Christians? Well, 
What was it that was at the heart of men like Jim Elliot? Well, the, the, the heart of men like Jim Elliot, Christians like Jim Elliot, is really the Lord Jesus himself. You see, that should be the case for all Christians if you profess to be a disciple of Jesus. Then at your very centre must be the Lord Jesus. He's the centre of your being, the centre of your whole existence. But then, what was it that was at the heart of Jesus himself? At the very centre of our heart should be Jesus, but what was at the centre of Jesus' heart? What was it that he set his heart on, his mind on, his focus on, his eyes upon? Well, that's what we see here in our passage. It becomes very clear to us in this passage. What was at the heart of Jesus was the cross and not the crown. The whole coming of Jesus, the whole Christmas story, the whole Easter story was the cross, not the crown. That's why he came. Have a look, verse 18. Jesus says, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. Now, when you read those words, they're in fact more shocking than it sounds. It's more shocking because it's, it's true. But what makes this even worse? No, notice there what, how Jesus calls himself. This is to happen to the Son of Man. Now, when we hear Jesus speak of himself in, that, in those terms, we might think, oh, Jesus meant that he's speaking of his humanity, that he's born of a man, but, but that's not the case. You see, the Son of Man is, in a sense, a title. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man is the divine figure, the divine ruler in Daniel's vision, the one who will be given all power and authority and glory over the whole world. And so Jesus is here saying to his disciples, I am that divine ruler, and I will be betrayed, and I will be condemned to death. And if that was not shocking enough, look at this. The divine ruler will be handed over to the Gentiles. That is significant. Look at verse 19. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and on the third day be raised to life. You see, one of the greatest fears for the people of God was to be handed over to the Gentiles. To be handed over to the Gentiles meant to experience the wrath and judgment of God. Even in, in the Old Testament with King David, the great King David, towards the end of his life, he, he did some terrible sins early on, but towards the end he, he, he committed another sin. He took a census which showed his trust in his army instead of his trust in God. Remember that story? Well, what happened was God was going to punish him and God gave him the option, how do you want to be punished? What did David pick? Well, he'd rather have 70,000 of his own men die from a plague that was sent from God than to flee from his enemies for three months. He'd rather die at the hands of God than at the hands of the enemies. You see, it was that terrible to die at the hands of Gentiles. But here you see Jesus, the divine ruler, the son of man, will die at the hands of Gentiles, the worst curse for any Jewish man. But even so, we see here, Jesus says, he will be vindicated. He will be raised to life again. But we already see here, what was at the heart of Jesus? It was the cross and not the crown. 
And it is that heart that shapes the hearts of Christians like Jim Elliot. But then what was in the heart of the disciples, the disciples who have been learning from Jesus, following him around for a few years? What did they put their focus on? Well, the disciples of Jesus, they were so different. They wanted the crown and not the cross. They wanted the status and not service. And that's what we go on to see here. It's a very strange thing that happens here. The mother gets involved, the mother of James and John. I mean, just talk about, you know, a tiger mum who wants the best for, the, for her children. This is that mother. Look at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's son came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling asked a favour of him. What is it you want? He asked. Verse 21. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You see, in her heart, in their heart, was the crown and not the cross. In their heart was status and not service. But now here at this point in the story, you must admire the the patience of Jesus. He's just told these dear friends of his, I'm about to die. And all you're concerned about is what you'll get out of me? I mean, it's a bit like two sons before the death of the father splitting up the inheritance. But then what did Jesus say? Look at verse 22. You don't know what you are asking. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? So what's this cup that Jesus speaks of? Well, in the Old Testament, the cup of God is the punishment and the wrath of God. So to drink this cup means to suffer and to die. And so we see this in in verses like Psalm 75. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. You see, to drink the cup of God is to experience his anger, his wrath, his judgment. And so Jesus is saying to James and John, are you able to drink that? Will you focus on the cross and not the crown? Will you focus on service and not status? Are you willing to die and suffer for me? And so what did the disciples say? Well, they probably spoke better than they knew at this point because straight away they said, well, we can. But will they? Will these two disciples bear the cross? Will they suffer for the sake of Christ? Well, look at verse 23. Jesus says, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. See, Jesus, is just, he's just predicted his own death. But now he predicts what will come of them. And they will eventually suffer for the sake of Christ. We know the Apostle James Only 11 years later, he was put to the sword by King Herod. He was the first apostle to be martyred. The apostle John, well, he was banished by the Roman emperor to the island of Patmos and left to die there in his old age. And so these two did eventually drink the cup. And of course, countless Christians have since also uh, suffered in the same way. The apostle Paul, he speaks of his life being poured out as a drink offering in his sacrifice and service of Christ. Jim Elliot, likewise. 
not knowing that he would die, he wrote in his journal, he, he said this. He wrote, I seek not a long life, but a full one, like you, Lord Jesus. He didn't know that he was going to die when they landed. 28 years, but that was a full life in the service of Christ. And so why did the disciples get it so wrong at this point? They've been with Jesus for a few years. But you see, it wasn't just James and John who got it wrong. They all got it wrong. All the disciples, look at verse 24. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. They were indignant, which means they were angry. They were angry not because they were thinking, how dare you, James and John? How insensitive of you to ask of this when the Lord just predicted his own death. Rather, they were angry and indignant out of jealousy. They're thinking, man, we should have got in there first. And so why did the disciples get it so wrong? Why were they thinking the crown and not the cross? Why were they thinking status and not service? It's because they just like us, just like us today, we like to think greatness means power and authority and prestige and privileges and status greatness means having people under you to tell what to do but you see here jesus turns that idea upside down jesus teaches the first will be last and the last will be first and so jesus tells them here greatness lies in service not status greatness lies in service not status look at verse 25 you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become greater among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. You see the, the, the teachings of Jesus here? Turns their world upside down. And it, in fact, turns our world upside down. It's not the high up you go, the greater you are. That's a deceptive distortion. It's the lower you go, the greater you are. The more people you love, the more people you serve, the greater you are. It's in fact why our political leaders here in Australia are called ministers. That comes from a Christian heritage. To minister means to serve. And so they're ministers because they're there to serve the people. In Parliament, they're there to represent their people in Parliament, not to lord it over them. And that's why the leader of the ministers is called the Prime Minister. He's the first of the servants, not lord it over them. To go up means to go down. And it's also why church ministers are called ministers. We're here to serve, not to rule. You see, greatness is in service, not status. But if you think about this, Christians do get this wrong, don't we? Even Christians. I mean, there are some, even Christians, who just love their titles. I mean, there's the reverend, and then there's the right reverend, and then the very reverend, and then the most reverend. You just think, how, how much can you revere a person? And some, in some church tradition, they even call him the primate. Forget reverend, he's a primate. I mean, Sometimes I'm caught uh, by some Pastor Johns. I suspect they're just teasing me. They call me Pastor John, but I always say, no, they, 
John is enough. No titles here. John is enough. You see, greatness is about service, not status. And Jim Elliot, he knew this. He, he, he wrote this in his journal. He said, Lord, make my way prosperous. Not that I achieve a high station, but that my life be an exhibit to the value of knowing God. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. But, but now we must think, what's the point of all of this? Why focus on the cross when it means your death? Why focus on service when it means self-denial? Why did Jesus set his heart on that? Well, here in this gospel, we come to the heart of the gospel. We come to the heart of what Christianity is all about. We come to the heart of Christ. Have a look at verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, the one who is greatest of all, you can't be greater than Jesus. No one can be greater than Jesus. But he made himself the lowest of all. And so here we see the heart of Jesus. It was to give his life as a ransom for many, to experience the betrayal of friends, to experience the unjust condemnation of his own people, to experience the agony of the crucifixion, to be hoisted up on that rude cross. Jesus drank the bitter cup to its very dregs at Calvary. His life wasted away as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us. You see, no amount of greatness, no amount of power or prestige or status or money can ransom anyone from the grave. How do you ransom anyone from the grave? No amount of greatness can do that. But the life and death of Jesus can. And so the heart of Jesus was the cross. Because at the heart of Jesus are his people, are people like us. And that's why in the rest of this passage we see his compassion. While everyone was trying to shut up those two blind men, get them to be quiet, don't bother the Lord, Jesus compassionately served them. Jesus lovingly healed them. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. And so if that is what Jesus is like, if that is what is at the core, the centre of his very heart, what do you think it means for us as his followers? What should be at the very centre of our heart? Well, let me ask it another way. How many different types of Christians are there? Well, the answer should be obvious. There should only be one. There must only be one type of Christian. Though we are so different in so many different ways, and that's okay, but there's only the one type of Christian. That's the serving type. That's the sacrificial type. That's the Jim Elliot type. You see, the faith that drove him to do what he did is the same faith that drives us. The, the heart that motivated him to do what he did is the same heart that motivates us. The gospel that compelled him to do what he did is the very same gospel that compels us today. And so how many different types of Christians are there? Well, there must only be one. The serving type. The sacrificial type. And so if we understand this, if we understand the heart of Jesus, how can 
any one of us continue to live a life longing for greatness in this world, longing for greatness in status, greatness in success, greatness in comfort, greatness in prosperity, greatness in wealth. I mean, that is to be like James and John, to ask Jesus to be at his right and at his left. And I suspect that we might not see this, but we Christianize our idolatry and we call it, well, it's for the glory of God. Grant me that greatness. It's for your glory, Lord. Let me be at your right and left. It's, it's for your glory, but let me share in your glory. You see, we Christianize our idolatry. And it is so easy to be sucked into this way of greatness. Don't you think? You know, it's, it's this deceptive root that is just so difficult to weed out because it's so ingrained in the way our society functions. It's so ingrained in the way we've been raised, in what we strive for. And it even affects, it even affects, and I've seen this, even affects those in full-time ministry. <laughs> They're meant to be the serpent of all, but yet it affects them too, those who are ministers of the gospel. You see, it's very easy to measure the greatness of, of our church in terms of numbers or finances or, or the ministries we run or your ministers, how one church compares to another. Greatness in status and not service. See, it's a temptation, and it's a temptation especially for those of us who are always up front, seeking the praise of men as opposed to seeking to serve humbly the Church of Christ. Now, many of you might not know this, but I've been writing and, and preaching since I was 21, so that's about 16 years ago. Over those 16 years, I've come to learn very quickly, very easy, to seek the crown and not the cross. Being up front, very easy to seek status and not service. And so a few years ago, I learned this very short prayer from another minister, and I pray each time I come up to preach. Very short prayer, simple prayer, but powerful. And it goes like this. You, not me. Simple as that. You, God, not me. Your greatness, not mine. Your glory, not mine. Your honour, not mine. And that's what we're learning in this passage. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. You, not me. You see, the mark of true greatness is in service. And so now let's think a bit about our church and about ourselves. In a church this size, we get, what, 180 in the morning service? Out of the 180 people, how many of us should be servants? Well, if all 180 are Christians, then there must be 180 servants because there's only the one type of Christian. But why is it that according to statistics, not a statistic that is done here, but according to general statistics, in many, many churches, it's only 10% of the people doing 90% of the work. Shouldn't it be 100% of the people doing 100% of the work? And according to statistics, in many, many churches, it's only 10% of people giving 90% of the offering. It shouldn't be 100% giving 100%. And so this is something for us to ask ourselves, isn't it? Are you among the 90% who come to be served and not to serve? Or are you among the 10% who come not to be served but to serve? 
Now, I do need to say this, and I do thank God for this, and that is I don't think that only 10% are doing 90% of the work in our church. I praise God for that. There are far more than 10%. There's far more than 10% humbly and faithfully serving each week, week in and week out. But do you think it's all 100% of us? Are there still the serving type and not the serving type? Are there still the ones who will and the ones who won't? Because there's only meant to be the one type of Christian, isn't there? I'm greatly encouraged when, when people come up and ask, you know, we've been to church for a while, we really want to get our hands dirty. We want to be involved in the life of this church. We want to serve. We want to express our heart that is for Christ. And I'm greatly encouraged. It happens. It doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. And so let me put this challenge to you. For you to consider your own life. How serving are you? Or how great are you in God's eyes? I mean, just consider what Christians do do. Why would anyone, think about this, why would anyone get involved in serving morning tea, in coming early to practice on our music team, to get involved in creche and miss out on our service, to get involved in our Sunday school, to come to Growth Group each way. Why would anyone do such a thing? It makes Sunday such a busy and stressful time if it's not for cross, not for service and not for you. Well, think about this. Why would anyone come to church always intentional, not just sitting to be served, but coming to church always intentional, seeking out the visitors, seeking out other members of the church, wanting to show hospitality, inviting people over to their homes, even if it means it's uncomfortable, it's hard work, even if it means an, another night not being alone with your family and having a big clean-up afterwards, why would anyone do such a thing if it's not for cross, for service and for you? Or why would anyone do this? Why would anyone steadily increase their gospel giving each year as their income increases? Why would anyone approach me, and this has happened, approach me? It's happened and they've asked. We want to give more towards the cause of the gospel. And they've asked me, even if it means less for their family. They've got family, they've got kids to raise. Why would anyone in their right mind do such a thing if it's not for cross, for service, and for you? Or why would anyone make the costly decisions that would affect their career prospects? Why would anyone make the costly decisions that would mean even missing out on their promotion? But it means having more time in the service of God and his kingdom. Why would anyone in their right mind do that if it's not for cross, for service and for you? Or why would anyone leave their career completely, undertake theological training, go to Bible college to become a minister of the gospel, why would anyone even think about marrying such a person? That would be crazy. Even if it means going to college, not having income for four years. Even if it means a life where the, the future is uncertain, where the life ahead, the life of ministry is relentless. Why would anyone do that? If it's not for cross, for service and for you. Or why would anyone do this? Why would anyone leave their country of great comfort to become a missionary in the dangerous rainforests of the Amazon 
to reach and unreach people that they might hear of Christ, even if it means being inconvenienced in such a serious way and risking their own lives. Why would anyone do that if it's not for cross, for service and for you? I mean, why would anyone do any of these things, from the little things to the big things? Well, why? It's because there's only the one type of Christian, the only the one type who is like Christ, who has Christ in our hearts. Cross, not crown. Service, not status. You, not me. And for some, for some following down that path, living that life might eventually also mean giving that life. You see, those five, five men who went to the Amazon, when the warriors came and confronted them with spears, they had spears, they, they were in a sense quite primitive, those five missionaries, they in fact had guns in their, in their plane, they, they had guns, they could have fired back. But they were resolved earlier to never kill the wild Dani people, even if they were attacked. And, and why was that? Well, they made this straight statement they said they are not ready for heaven and we are even if they were attacked they were clear we will not fire back and so just like it was for christ to serve for a serve us and to die for us none of that service goes to waste because what came out of jim elliott and his team's work i mean they were killed on on the day they landed and camped there they died, they left their families without a husband and father. It didn't seem like they did much at all in the service of God. It seems like such a waste of life. But you see, two of their wives continued their work. Many more missionaries became involved in their work. And Christianity eventually came to the wild Dani people. If Christianity, some anthropologists say, if Christianity did not come to them, they would probably have killed themselves out because of their tribal warfare. Well, the missionaries, they eventually made contact with those killers. Now get this, this was what happened. Four out of those six killers later became Christians. They repented, they were remorseful. They repented. They trusted in Jesus as their saviour and later, those four even became elders in the wild Dani church. I mean, imagine our small efforts, our big efforts in the service of Christ, what God can do through all of that. God might change lives. God might save lives as we serve him. But what type of Christian are you? You see, there's only one type. If you're not this type, you're the wrong type. There's only the one type of Christian it's the one who focuses on the cross and not the crown. Service, not status. You, not me. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as a ransom for us lost souls. And so we pray, Lord, that you might set our hearts alight that our hearts would align with the heart of Christ, that we will focus on the cross, on service, and on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.